Uh, thanks for your warm welcome. You can open your Bibles to um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And Ron, thank you for your kind comments. I always, always love hanging out with you. It was a joy to be with you and Tammy and Bill and Kit yesterday and have lunch together. Seasoned and spicy. That's probably the best community group name I've heard in Sovereign Grace, by the way. So props to that, to that name. I wanted to come not only because, as Ron mentioned, you're, you're a church I pray for. You're a church that I carry on my heart. I primarily wanted to come to, to thank you uh, for being a part of Sovereign Grace Churches. And I wanted to come and I wanted to do that personally. I wanted to look you in the eye and hear from me my, my gratitude for this church being a part of Sovereign Grace. And let me tell you why I thank God for you. Uh, your gospel presence here in the Pasadena area, your commitment to preach the gospel, your commitment to apply the gospel, your commitment to reach out to the lost with the gospel, those may seem like ordinary things, but they're extraordinary in the sight of God, and they strengthen us as a family of churches because there are other churches around the world like you who are attempting to do the same thing. So when we hear that you're doing that, it encourages us as a family of churches. Uh, not only your presence here locally in the Pasadena area, uh, just the way you've built relationally with our brothers and sisters in the Philippines. Bill, thank you for praying for Nilo and Nadine uh, and asking God to heal them. Um, that, that is an important relationship. You just befriending them and getting to know them and praying for them, that strengthens our partnership in sovereign grace. And so you're, you're a part of doing that. And uh, I want you to be aware of what is happening in Sovereign Grace. In fact, Ron asked me to take a few moments just to tell you. Um, right now in Sovereign Grace, and Bill prayed for this, there are at least 75 churches from outside of the United States who are asking to be adopted into Sovereign Grace. 11 in Latin America, 4 in Europe, all of those are in Belarus, which is very interesting given the political upheaval in that nation right now. 17 in Africa, and 42 in Asia. Uh, that would include uh, India, Nepal, the Philippines, and, and Australia. So you can see how your relationship with uh, the brothers and sisters in the Philippines is strengthening our work. In addition to that, we're planting nine churches right now in Sovereign Grace. Seven of those are outside of the United States. Uh, Australia, um, uh, Ethiopia, Liberia, Guinea, Bolivia, and Brazil. And so be praying for those church, church plants if you, if you would. This is, um, this is a work that I can't take credit for. This is a work that the leadership team can't take credit for. This is a work of God. In fact, some of our most challenging times in our country for the churches in our nation, uh, we've been walking through, and yet outside the states, there's been this interest in our small denomination. And there's only one explanation for that. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And so we want Him to receive all the glory. Uh, because the other thing that He's doing is He's giving us very good strategic leaders throughout the world that will help us. Uh, Non-Americans, and we need non-Americans. Jeffrey Joe leads a big church in the Manila, Philippines. He's a, an important strategic leader alongside of, of Nilo. 
A man by the name of Diona Thomas in Monrovia, Liberia is a very good leader. Uh, JP in, in India, the Andhra Pradesh region of India, Carlos Contreras in Mexico, and Jose Lo Mercado who travels throughout Latin America. God is just giving us these men and uh, we're partnering with them and they're important in helping us to steward the, the growth that God is giving us. And along with that, what's happened is I can only describe as a work of the Spirit is there are members of our churches who are being very generous and they're coming to us and they're saying, we, what we experience in our local church, in a Sovereign Grace church, we want to see that expand throughout the world. And so they've given generously to what we've developed now is um, development funds, a Latin America development fund, uh, an Africa development fund, and an Asia Pacific development fund that's helping us to fund the ministry that the Lord's giving our way. And, and again, that is the Lord's doing. There is no fundraising strategy behind that. It was just the work of the Spirit. Um, let me just tell you one story, because uh, those are a bunch of facts, but here's a story. Um, Carlos Contreras told me this story not too long ago. There was a man in Reynosa, Mexico. If you know anything about Reynosa, it is a gang-infested, uh, cartel-driven city. It's a dangerous city. And there was a man working in that city, a believer, and he was needing to travel to Juarez, where Carlos Contreras leads Iglesia Gracia Soberana in Juarez, Mexico, a church of about 800 people. And he found his way to Carlos's church, and when he was in town for business, he would go and worship with them. And over the course of several months, he came to Carlos and he said, we, we need a church like this in Reynosa. We need the gospel in Reynosa. We need to plant a church there. And so they just began to pray. And so this man continued to travel and do consultant work. And finally, his, his organization came to him and said, would you be willing to move to Juarez? Because we have enough work there now. And he said, I would love to move to, to Juarez. So he moved he and his family to Juarez. They've been there for two or three years now. And as he's been a member of that church, what God has stirred in his heart, along with Carlos Contreras, is that he may actually be the man who will return to Reynosa and plant a church there. And so now he's beginning the preparation of church planting. And I tell you that story so you can pray for that. That's an opportunity for our family of churches to plant in a very difficult city. But I want, here's what I want you to see from that. That's the work of the Spirit, stirring a man to have a, a sovereign grace church in a city, his, his company moving them there to Juarez where he can be prepared when that wasn't even a part of his thinking and now stirring his heart to maybe even be the person that plants the church. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And so may he receive all the glory and all the honor. So that's a little bit about what is happening in Sovereign Grace and what you are strengthening and are a part of. So thank you for being a part of our family of churches. I sent Ron several sermon options and we both chose this one because we believe that we need courage as Christians right now to live in our current chaotic world. Title of my message is always of good courage. And here's basically what we're going to learn from this text. Courage is inspired by God and is exhibited in service to God. So 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to read the first 11 verses. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from, the, from, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the, in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. May God bless the preaching of his word. When John Welsh stepped out of his pulpit in Ayr, Scotland, on July 23rd, 1605, the men of King James VI were there to immediately arrest him for being a dissenter or a nonconformist. What that basically means is that John refused to keep preaching the whole counsel of God and the true gospel. And for that, he was imprisoned at Blackness Castle in Falkirk and eventually banished to France never to return to his church. See, John was a pastor who believed that pastors should, be, should have the freedom to preach the whole counsel of God and the true gospel, even at the risk of imprisonment himself. Now, John was married to Elizabeth, the daughter of John Knox, and she seemed to courageously share her husband's convictions. For when she learned that her husband's health was failing in France, she went to King James VI and appealed that he be allowed to come home. And the king replied that he would only grant the appeal if her husband John conformed, meaning that he would stop preaching the true gospel. To which Elizabeth replied by holding out her apron, saying that she would rather have his head cut off and placed in her apron than to have him betray the truth. Now, as I read this historical account, I stopped right there. And I thought, that is exactly what my wife, Jill, would do. That if I stopped preaching the whole counsel of God, that if I stopped preaching the true gospel, she would hold out her apron. Now, after arriving at Blackness Castle, John received a poem written by Lady Coolross, who was 
supporting the nonconformists. The poem was written to inspire courage by reminding John of the hope of the eternal life that was his in Christ. This is how the first stanza of the poem goes. My dear brother, with courage bear the cross. Joy shall be joined with all thy sorrows here. High is thy hope, disdain this earthly dross. Once you shall see the wish day appear. You see, written words that remind us of the eternal life that we have in Christ, they inspire courage as we walk through the difficulties of this temporal life, including pandemics and political polarization and our culture's trend that is rapidly moving away from the truth that is found in God's Word. See, that is the effect of the words that we read here in 2 Corinthians 5, where we are to grasp, we are to see the effect of these words that Paul writes is to stir in us to be a people who are always of good courage, verse 6. Now, to, to grasp the significance of what Paul is experiencing in writing these words, we must understand the context in which he wrote them. We know that from chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, that Paul is experiencing afflictions to the point that he says, I despaired of life itself, chapter 1, verse 8. In chapters 2, verses 1 through, uh, 12 through 14, and in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, we find that Paul is being criticized and his integrity is being called into question from some of the people in the Corinthian church. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 tell us that Paul is facing difficult ministry experiences where he says to the Corinthians that he, he doesn't want to make another painful visit to them. In fact, he tells the Corinthians that he's actually fearful. He's fearful that in making another visit to Corinth, he might not find them as he wished, nor they would find him as they wished. Chapter 12, verse 20. Chapter 11 tells us that, he, that, there was, that his afflictions were not limited to just difficult ministry experiences, for he records in that chapter that he was beaten with rods, stoned, shipwrecked, consistently in danger, experienced sleepless nights and days without food, all because of his labors for the gospel. In addition to these afflictions, Paul lived very aware of his weaknesses and his limitations and his insufficiencies, which he actually boasts about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. And I believe a member of your church penned their own poem based on that text that you heard just a couple of weeks ago. And it seems from our text that, that Paul is actually grappling with death itself. He realizes that he may be on death's doorstep. Can you relate to Paul? Hasn't this pandemic caused all of us to, to grapple with our mortality and death itself? The last year and a half has brought trials and loss of jobs and, and uncertainty about the future. It can cause anxiety 
And all of those things can work in a way in our lives that they can cause us to lose courage. Add to that self-awareness we have regarding our own weaknesses and limitations, and we can be people who lose heart, as it says in chapter 4, verse 16. And yet, despite these afflictions, Paul writes in verse 6 that he is always of good courage. Context alone tells us that his good courage didn't emerge from his circumstances. And aware of his weaknesses and limitations, we know that Paul isn't working up courage on his own strength as, self, as some self-generated virtue. Rather, these verses tell us that this good courage that Paul had was inspired by God and was exhibited in service to God. But before we look more closely at that phrase, always of good courage, let's define courage itself. Here's how I'm defining it. Courage is saying or doing the right thing regardless of the cost. Like John and Elizabeth Welsh, courage is convinced that based on the truth that is found in God's Word, the right thing must be spoken or done regardless of the cost. Now, we've got to get this right. Courage is not the absence of fear, but saying and doing the right thing in spite of that fear. Courage is unshakable in the presence of risk and anxieties and fear because it is convinced that saying or doing the right thing is the only option even when you don't know how it's going to turn out in terms of what you say and what you do. John Piper writes this, Christian courage is the willingness to say and do the right thing regardless of the earthly costs. Because God promises to help you and save you on account of Christ, an act takes courage if it will likely be painful. The pain may be physical, as in war and rescue operations, or the pain may be mental, as in confrontation and controversy. See, it took courage for Paul to serve the Corinthians because he needed to say the right things to them and call them to do the right things in God's eyes, knowing that what he would say and what he would call them to do would cause him anguish of heart, chapter 2, verse 4. So for you, Sovereign Grace Church of Pasadena, courageously saying and doing the, the right thing now will provide you and I, I believe prepare you to say and do the right thing in the future, especially in a culture where our culture is moving further and further away from the truth that is found in God's Word, whether that's gender identity issues or right-to-life issues, for example. Like many of you, I've been praying this prayer, and I'm sure you're praying this prayer. May, may God use this unprecedented time in our world to bring about an unprecedented advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, this, this pandemic, the last national election, and our culture's current trend away from the Word of God, it's raising questions in people's minds that live all around us and the church that is built upon the Word of God. We are the people that have the answers, the right answers for those questions. This pandemic it doesn't seem to end with another variant that seems to be 
popping up. People are wrestling with their own mortality and they're hopeless. And we are the only people who offer true hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we will need to have courage to share the good news of Jesus. So here's the question I want to answer for us. How can we be people who are always of good courage? We see in this text three characteristics of those who are always of good courage. Here's the first characteristic. Those of good courage possess eternal certainties. Those of good courage possess eternal certainties. So in the midst of the affliction and criticism and issues and the difficult ministry experiences, even Paul facing the, the death itself, he writes this, that he is always of good courage. Always meaning at all times, on all occasions, in all circumstances, without exception, he is always of good courage. Why is he so emphatic about that? Because of this. In light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he was confident about his future because if he was in Christ, then he knew that he would be raised with Christ. He said as much in chapter 4, verse 14. Look at chapter 4, verse 14. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. In light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul by faith in Christ possessed an eternal certainty that gave him courage in the face of fear, in the face of anxiety and anguish and difficulties. So aren't, aren't we a people, aren't you a people who believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? You are, aren't you? Aren't we sure that on that day when we die, we will be raised with Christ? And when Christ returns, aren't we sure that we have this eternal certainty that we will be raised with Christ? We are. So by faith, these eternal certainties, they're not only for Paul and the Corinthians, they're for all of us who read this text, and they are intended to give us courage. Now, we find four eternal certainties in, this, in these 11 verses. I'm only going to mention these very, very briefly, but I want them to stir your soul and inspire courage. Here's the first eternal certainty. First, we know from verse 1 that we will possess a superior eternal home, one that is built by God himself, and that home will never be destroyed. To use the language of the text, the tent is gone, and the building is sure, and it is ours. The second eternal certainty we see in the text is in verses 6 through 8, that death is actually this. Death is simply a departure from this world where we will go and be with Christ. Don't you long for that day when you will see Jesus face to face. Third, we know from verses 2 through 4 that at the return of Christ, we will possess a new glorified body. And as I get older and older, the more I look forward to that day and to that glorified body. Can I get an amen on that, right? 
Fourth, eternal certainty that we see. Fourth, we possess these certainties because the Spirit who dwells in us at conversion, He continues to work Christ-like transformation in our lives. And then He does this. Verse 5 tells us He actually guarantees our eternal inheritance that will be ours. See, the tone of this text is not one of cringing fear that arises from human uncertainties, but one of confident assurance born of divine certainties. And these eternal certainties inspire courage because if the risk is so high that in doing the right thing may even mean that we might lose our life, you do it anyway because you know you win. You go and are able to be with Christ. These eternal certainties inspire courage because if saying or doing the right thing puts more burdens into your life and causes maybe deeper groanings that this text talks about, you say and you do the right thing anyway because you know that those burdens are only light and momentary afflictions that are preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. Chapter 4, verse 17. You see, courage is inspired by God. It's inspired by God. And, and in, in Christ, we possess these eternal certainties as we say and do the right thing in our service to God. See, Paul was always... He was always of good courage because in his afflictions, here's what he did, he kept his eye on these eternal certainties that were his in Christ, and he realized that when he took his eye off of those eternal certainties, that God was using his trials and his afflictions to redirect his gaze to the eternal certainties that he had in Christ. Jeff Robinson says this, When life shrinks to the moment and we lose our sight of eternity, we can walk down the dark road of discouragement and through the doors to the dungeon of discontentment. In His mercy, God rescues us from these dangerous roads by reorienting our gaze from temporal things to heavenly things. In Paul's ministry, affliction was the instrument God used to redirect the apostles' focus. In light of eternity, Paul's sufferings were seen as light and momentary afflictions. So with all of the 24-7 news headlines that we hear, with all of the statistics that fill our screens, with the isolation that we seem to just be emerging out of that has affected us. Has, has your life shrunk down to the moment? Have you lost your gaze on the eternal certainties that are yours in Christ? If so, learn what Paul learned in this text. Allow the, the difficulties and the challenges and the burdens, the groanings as this text says, allow those to be used by God to redirect your gaze to the eternal certainties that you have in Christ. And here's what will happen that will inspire courage. See, those of good courage, they possess eternal certainties. 
Okay, second characteristic of those who are always of good courage. Number two, those of good courage walk by faith. Those of good courage walk by faith. That, we see that in verses 6 and 7. Look at those again. So, so in light of the eternal certainties that he's referenced, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. While we are at home in this body, on this earth, and away from visibly seeing the Lord Jesus Christ, we are people who, who walk by faith and not by sight. In fact, Paul introduced this concept of walking by faith and not by sight at near the end of chapter 4. Look at verses 17 and 18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Walking by faith means that we are people who walk not by sight. We don't look at the things that are seen, but we, by faith, we look to the unseen, which Paul calls eternal things in those verses. But the question is, how do we do that? How do we walk by faith so that it inspires courage or so that we are always of good courage? Well, certainly by faith, we possess these eternal certainties that we just looked at, which are their unseen eternal certainties, and they inspire courage by keeping our gaze upon eternity, even in transient trials. We're also people who walk by faith, believing that God is using the trials in our world now caused by this pandemic or caused by the cultural issues that we are facing to do this, to prepare for us an eternal weight of glory that Paul says we, we don't have anything even to compare it to. Therefore, with, with courage, here's what we can do. We can look the Delta variant in the eye and we can look our culture in the eye that's headed away from God's Word, and we can say what you intended for evil, God is using for our good. That's a person that walks by faith. But there's, a, there's another truth in this text that is intended to strengthen our faith and help us to walk by faith so that we will always be of good courage. Here's the truth. Did you notice that every person of the Trinity is mentioned in these 11 verses. God the Father is mentioned in verses 1, 5, and 11. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is mentioned in verses 6, 8, 10, and 11, and the Holy Spirit in verse 5. In this context, then, God the Father has prepared for us eternal life through the giving of His Son, and Jesus comes and He makes a way for sinners to be forgiven and redeemed through His atoning work in the gospel and His completed work on the cross, making a way for us through His blood to spend eternally with God that verse 5 says the Spirit now guarantees in our lives. That is the work of the Trinity. 
So regardless of how quickly our economy will recover or when things get back to normal, if that will ever happen, we are still people who are of good courage because we believe that every person of the Trinity is at work right now and is not only at work right now, every person of the Trinity is at work through us and is with us. And when our faith begins to fail, the truth of the Trinity, it's meant to do this, it's meant to strengthen our faith and to comfort us. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says along those lines. There is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. And some of you need that balm this morning because you're hurting. There is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And you need that because of a lingering sadness in your life. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrows? Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in His immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so speak peace to the winds of trial, as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead, the Godhead Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You see, musing upon the Trinity will not only comfort us, it will inspire courage in our hearts because if we have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit on our side, we can look any job furlough or the chaos of our time. We can look all those things in the eye and say, I have peace because I trust my God will provide and protect and sustain me. Let's try to think of a way to make specific application to your church. And so this is what I'm aware of, talking with Ron. Over the last year, year and a half, there have been a number of people that have left your church for various reasons. People that you love, people that are friends, people that you still love. And that's been hard to see them go. It's, it's brought a sadness It's not been easy for you. And now, and yet, what the Lord is doing is bringing new people, nine or ten people in your new members class. We don't understand the ways of the Lord. Some leave and some come now. And you may be just wrestling with this thought. Are you going to put yourself in that place of vulnerability again? And are you going to get to know and do life and befriend these new folks that are coming? Are you going to risk hurt even again? See, I I believe this text calls you to do just that. And you do that by walking by faith. Faith that you know that's what God's called you to do in His Word. Faith that the Father and the Son and the Spirit will give you power. That Tammy talked about from the mic this morning. He will give you power to walk by faith and get to know them and love them and strengthen them. You walk by faith in the unseen. You don't know how that's all going to play out. But what you do know is what God is calling you to do. 
Now, I, I don't want to say that unaware of the, the challenge that might be, unaware of the, the reality that that might be difficult for you. Because the Bible's very real about challenges. I'm so grateful for that. Even this past week as another news headline came across my screen on my computer and then aware of some difficulties in another church, I, I began to lose heart. I was discouraged. I was lacking faith that I had to confess to God. But in that moment, I decided to sing and to sing to the Lord. And it's this song in particular, O Lord, my God and my Redeemer, and verse 2 in particular that has strengthened me on days like that. Let me, let me read. I'm, I won't sing. That would be bad. But let me read verse 2 to you. O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer, strong defender of my weary heart, my sword to fight the cruel deceiver and my shield against his hateful darts. My song when enemies surround me, my hope when tides of sorrow rise, my joy when trials are abounding. Your faithfulness, my refuge in the night. And so when your heart is weary, when you are lacking faith, when enemies surround you, when tides of sorrow rise in your life, here's what you ought to do. Here's what I would encourage you to do. Walk by faith, by singing truth, which in itself is an expression of courage. Spurgeon says it this way, songs in the night prove that we have true courage. Many sing by day who are silent by night. They're afraid of thieves and robbers. But the Christian who sings in the night proves himself to be a courageous character. It is the bold Christian who can sing God's sonnets in the darkness. So for some of you, this, this pandemic has brought discouragement and God is calling you to walk courageously by, by singing him in the midst of your discouragement. Maybe the, the thing that causes you to groan is the wayward child who's just walked away from Christ. And in those moments, he's calling you to sing in your sadness and in your groaning. Maybe you're discouraged by the loss of a job or a drop of income, and you're uncertain how God will provide. Take time to sing to God to your provider, knowing that he will help you. Maybe you're doing your best to educate your children right now, and you wonder if they are learning anything at all, and you're ready to give up. On those days, sing in the darkness truth. See, walk by faith by courageously singing songs in the darkness that remind you that, of who God is, that he is your defender and your shield and your provider and your protector and your hope. As Lady Colrose wrote to John Welsh, high is thy hope. She's writing that to a man in prison. Remember, high is thy hope. Disdain this earthly, earthly dross once you shall see the wished day appear. Let us be people who walk by faith, courageously doing and saying 
the right thing because we possess eternal certainties. And until that wish day appears, we know that our God, our, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, He is with us. Okay, third and last characteristic of those who have good courage. Those of good courage fear the Lord. Those of good courage fear the Lord. We see that in verses 9 through 11. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. While verses 1 through 8 in this chapter speak of ways that can inspire courage, here in verse 9 we find the, the aim of being people who are always of good courage. What is that aim? That aim is this. We are people who seek to please the Lord. That, that word aim, it, it means this. It means to have an exclusive preoccupation to live in a way that pleases Christ. Servants of Christ, they say and they do the right thing regardless of the cost because they are preoccupied with pleasing Jesus Christ. In other words, it is a good courage, as Paul says, because the purpose is not shrinking back in the midst of pandemics and trials and fears, but to please the one who is, who is lovingly given his life for you. And in keeping with the mood of this text, the aim of pleasing Christ is not just a temporal aim, it is an eternal aim for us as believers as well. See, having a, a preoccupation with pleasing Christ in this life, it does this. It prepares you to stand before the judgment seat of Christ on that day. Now, the original audience, when they would have read verse 10, they would have thought about a Roman courtroom that had a tribunal bench. And there the emperor would sit and he would issue his judgments. See, knowledge of the judgment seat, that we will all stand before Christ, and the inescapable accountability that we will all need to give to Christ for what we've done in this life, it is intended, as verse 11 says, to, to stir the fear of the Lord. That's a very good thing, the fear of the Lord in our hearts. It's a good thing because the fear of the Lord for the Christian is not a, a slavish fear of eternal condemnation at the judgment seat where we would just recoil away from God. Rather, it is a fear marked by reverence and awe because when we stand before that judgment seat, we'll stand before God Himself and we will fall towards Christ pleading His blood on our behalf. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, here's what we are called to do. We are called to serve people for Jesus' sake by persuading them. That's the language there we see in the text. By persuading them, using the truth found in God's Word for right actions to live in a way, so they were to live in a way that pleases Christ. And we're to, we're to do that regardless of the cost for us. 
Contextually then, verse 11 tells us that when Paul was being criticized and falsely accused by the Corinthians, here's what he did in this letter. He sought to courageously persuade them of his integrity, not simply for self-serving means, but he didn't want them to give an account before the Lord for the ill-informed criticism and false accusations that they had embraced. He was concerned for that day when they will stand before the Lord. See, in like manner, Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, that we will give an account, every one of us will give an account for every careless word spoken. So here's what we must do as Christians, knowing that. We must courageously speak against gossip that provides false or ill-informed criticism of another because we don't want people, we must persuade people not to believe those things because we don't want them to stand before the judgment seat of God with that ill-informed information. As, as people around us wrestle with questions about God and how He works in the world today, and that's happening a lot. People have real questions right now in our nation and throughout the world. As they, as they wrestle with those questions about how He works, we must courageously and compassionately answer those questions with the truth found in God's Word, regardless of the risk. When, when people experience the, the limitations that any earthly government is going to have in dealing with pandemics or, or national disasters or all that's happening in our world today, we must courageously point them to our God who has no limitations and is the only one where they will find hope and peace. And we must do that regardless of the cost. Spurgeon encourages this this way. My dear brothers and sisters, it will sometimes happen to you that to do the right thing will appear to be most disastrous. It will shipwreck your fortune and bring you into trouble, but I charge you, do the right thing at any cost. Instead, if you speak straight out, but speak straight out and never mind what comes of it, you and I have nothing to do with what becomes of us or our reputations. Our one business is to do the Father's will. In this text, our one business is to please Christ with dogged obstinacy, as men call it, but with resolute consecration as God esteems it, through the mire and through the slough, through the flood and through the flame, follow Jesus and the infallible word. Let us do the right thing regardless of the cost as we encounter the needs that people have. And they're going to continue to have them in our world and meeting those needs with a courageous generosity, if you can say it that way, in our service to them in a way that pleases Christ. As God uses this unusual time in our nation and in our world. And by the way, I just read an article just a few days ago that just talked about how angry people are in our world today and in our nation. You're, you're aware of that. People are just angry. And that's the people that live around us. Those are the people that we're called to love and we are called to engage. And as God opens the doors in their hearts to hear the gospel, we must courageously share the good news of Jesus Christ with them and do that with a sense of urgency because we know that a judgment seat awaits them. Brothers and sisters, here's what the fear of the Lord does. The fear of the Lord prepares you to face any fearful situation or conversation with courage. 
As James Johnston says, if you fear God, you will fear nothing else. If you do not fear God, you will fear everything else. You see, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is inspired by the right fear, the fear of the Lord. And may our God-inspired courage exhibited in our service to God during this cultural moment prepare us to be courageous in the days to come and when we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And may we be people who on that day hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Let me close with this. The last two stanzas that Lady Colross wrote to John Welsh, Welsh they, they go like this. Look to the Lord, thou art not left alone. Since he is thine, what pleasure canst thou take? He is at hand and hears thy every groan. End out thy fight and suffer for his sake. A sight most bright thy soul shall shortly see when the store of glory, I mean the store of glory, thy rich reward shall be. Brothers and sisters, let us, let us end out our fight together by courageously saying and doing the right thing regardless of the cost, looking to the Lord, knowing that we are not alone and confident of the rich, eternal riches that we will enjoy in that store of glory one day that will be ours in Christ. May, may our good courage be inspired by God and exhibited in our service to God as we serve others for the glory of God. Amen.